So, I love this church. I love serving as one of your pastors. I especially love serving alongside the staff and James. It's easy to follow James because he follows Jesus. And we got to take a road trip this past week. And that's the the other thing that I enjoy about staff and, and being with James is we just have a lot of fun together. So we went down and visited several uh, college campuses this past week and got to meet with some of our students as well as some of our uh, campus ministers. And one of my favorite things about this is the reaction that we get when, when people meet James for the very first time and find out that he is the senior pastor at McLean Presbyterian Church Last summer at General Assembly, which is our annual denominational gathering, some of the reactions were great. We ran into uh, one person who grew up in this church and who is now on staff of the denomination. And when he met James and found out that James was the senior pastor, he was like, I cannot believe that you are the senior pastor of my McLean Presbyterian Church. And then we met the wife of a prominent PCA pastor, and she had one of the same reactions. They're just not quite expecting someone so young, uh, but yet so gifted. What in the world does that have to do with Palm Sunday? You know, I should be careful about giving my senior pastor a hard time, but at least I'm using an illustration that compares him to Jesus. So, <laughs> and here's the point. The reaction to Jesus on this day of Palm Sunday in Matthew's Gospel would have been similar, but on a much, much larger scale. They got a king, they got a Messiah whom none of them were really expecting. See, Jesus has been ministering for about three years at this point. He's been going around the countryside, he's been preaching and teaching and doing all these incredible miracles like giving sight to the blind, causing the lame to walk, and even resurrecting the dead. And after he does some of these incredible miracles, Jesus always seems to do something strange. He tells them not to say anything. Tell no one except your closest friends and family. Why does he perform these great miracles and then tells them to be quiet? His answer is always, because the hour has not yet come. We see on this day in Jerusalem, as he is entering this city, he is declaring that his hour has now come. If you look at the uh, the context in Matthew chapter 20, he heals two blind men who now have sight, and they cry out to him with a messianic title, Son of David. And instead of deflecting this, he accepts this title. And you see, what Jesus is doing is he is pouring gasoline on the fire. He is about to make a triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And he is going to reveal his identity in such a way that the crowds are going to ask, Who is this? And so I want to look at the text today and to see who is this, and maybe, just maybe, we'll be a little surprised. So what's the first thing that we can learn about Jesus in this text? The first thing is this, is that Jesus is a king. You see, right before this triumphant entry, just to set the stage, he goes to stay at the home of some of his closest friends. He goes to stay with Lazarus and Mary and Martha on a Friday night, which when the Sabbath would have begun at sundown. 
And he spends the Sabbath with these three friends. And Saturday night, Mary anoints uh, him with oil. And then he wakes up on Sunday morning and he goes out to enter Jerusalem. Now, what did he do? What are some of the clues that tell us about his identity in this passage? Clue number one is this. I want you to notice his authority in this passage. He has the authority to commandeer an animal without any suspicion that he does this. This is a kingly act that kings can commandeer any property for their use. And so by Jesus commandeering this donkey, he is making a claim that he has authority, that he is a king. And then the text tells us something strange, that it's also the foal of a beast of burden, that it's unbroken. And the reason that we are told this is because in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, an unbroken beast of burden was considered sacred, something that kings would ride. So Jesus, by taking this donkey, this colt, and riding on an unbroken beast of burden is an act of self-disclosure that he is claiming to be a king. The second clue that we get in this passage about his kingship are the actions. See, the crowd saw him riding into Jerusalem as a kingly gesture because they did something that they would only do for kings. They put their garments and the cloaks And they spread them out on the ground like a red carpet for a dignitary. And they had seen this before in the life of Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 9, at the inauguration of Jehu as king, they had done this. So they very easily saw this as a deliberate act of a king. And then in addition to this, in verse 9, they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is a quote from Psalm 118, which is from the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, from Psalm 113 to 118. And as the pilgrims gathered for the celebration of Passover in Jerusalem, all of them would have been singing these psalms. And Psalm 118 was clearly a messianic psalm. You see, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, this is during the time of Passover. And the city would swell to being five to six times of its normal population. So if Jerusalem was inhabited with maybe forty to 60,000 Jews, during this season of Passover, there would be up to a quarter of a million to half a million Jews gathered in Jerusalem at this time. So when they are crying out, Psalm 118 It is a kingship claim, a messianic psalm. The third clue that we have about his kingship here is the prophecy. In chapter 5, or uh, chapter 21, verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And where did this come from? This is a prophecy from Isaiah in Zechariah chapter 9, that was written almost 500 years before this time period. This is a messianic, a kingship prophecy. And Jesus is saying, I am here and I am that king. Now in the Gospel of Matthew, this is a big deal because he's always trying to show that Jesus 
is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which we'll come back to in a minute. So by looking at his authority, by looking at the actions, and by looking at the prophecy, there can be no mistake that Jesus is claiming to be a king because all of these clues tell us very clearly something about his identity. It's not so different from us or from me. So if you uh, saw what I ride in or what I drive and you saw it was a minivan and you saw that it had several car seats in it with melted crayons and spilled drinks and lots of baseball gear, you could conclude something about me by my ride. You would conclude that I am a family man. And if I showed up at a baseball field with a bunch of gear and bats and helmets and I'd sent out a prior email predicting that we will be there for a certain time of practice, you have a pretty good idea of who I am. I'm a baseball coach showing up to coach my son's t-ball team. You see, Jesus is clearly making a claim to be a king here by his authority, by his actions, and by claiming the fulfillment of prophecy. He's being deliberate during this last week of his life And you know, the Gospels, almost one-third of Matthew, Mark, and Luke devote their entire, one-third is devoted to the last week in the life of Jesus. Half of the Gospel of John is devoted to one week in the life of Jesus. Why? Because everything in history is pointing towards this week. And Jesus is claiming to be king. In Luke's account of this passage, the Pharisees in the crowd respond to Jesus and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why do the Pharisees ask Jesus to rebuke his disciples? Because he is very clearly declaring that he is the Messiah. And not only does he not rebuke his disciples, he says, If you do not honor me and praise me as king, even the very rocks will cry out. You see, if we are going to consider the identity of Jesus, we have to let him tell us who he is. Jesus is clearly claiming to be more than a good teacher, as some would like to tell you. So Jesus is claiming to be a king, but what's the big deal? There were other Israelites who were kings. Why are we waving palm branches about him 2,000 years later? He's a king But here's the second point. He's a different kind of king. You see, they expected Jesus to enter Jerusalem. They expected the Messiah. They expected the king to enter as a conquering military hero who would spill the Roman blood, who would expand the borders of their kingdom to the days of Solomon, that he would set up a kingdom that would never fail, and then their Messiah comes into town riding on a donkey. So we can learn two things about this king that's different. One, he's a humble king. You see, this is what kings did. After a great military victory, they would process back into their city. And most of the time they would come back on what? A war horse, a stallion, a champion of the people. And what he comes riding in on is a donkey. They expected him to enter like Katniss and Peta in the Hunger Games on this chariot of fire. And instead, he comes in riding on this humble, gentle 
donkey. And that tells us something about Jesus that makes him unique. He's a king, but he's humble. And you see, there was one other time in the life of Israel when a king had entered on a donkey. And the other king who had entered on a donkey was Solomon. Because riding in on a donkey was symbolic that he was a king during peace, not a wartime president like his father David, who would have ridden a war horse. So the first thing that we see that's different about this king is that he's humble. The second thing that we can notice about this king that makes him different is that not only is he humble, but he's divine. Notice that he takes this colt that's never been ridden before, this unbroken animal, and he is calmed under the Messiah. He is demonstrating that he is the creator, that he has control over nature. And then down in verse 13, he enters the temple, and he calls the temple, what? His house. He is claiming ownership of the temple. And then he denounces their use of the temple, And he purifies the temple. And then he comes to the blind and the lame and the Gentiles who are in this outer court who could not enter into the temple. They could not even offer sacrifices in the temple. And Jesus goes to them and what does he do? He heals the blind. He touches the lame. He interacts with the foreigner. And those who are considered unclean unable to enter into the temple, he is making them clean. And as he does this, he is demonstrating his superiority over the temple. And he accepts the praise, and the chief priest and the teachers of the law are what? They are indignant. And when challenged, Jesus quotes Psalm 8-2, and he applies this passage of Scripture intended for God to himself. Jesus is claiming to not just be their king. He's claiming to be divine. He is declaring that he is the ultimate temple. He is the quintessential priest and he is the way to the presence of the Lord. He is the true Passover lamb. It's why when John in his revelations when he looks on the throne of the universe, what does he see? He sees a lamb being led to slaughter, right? On the throne. Why is the veil in the temple ripped in two on Good Friday? Why? Because a greater temple is here. The temple was only a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. The temple is obsolete. That's why Jesus says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days because Jesus is claiming to be the temple. He is claiming to be the mediator between a holy God and sinful man. And he is claiming to be a better temple. He is combining traits that We have never seen before in a king. He is humble and divine. He is meek and majestic. And he didn't come to spill the blood of the Romans, but he came to give his own blood as a life, uh, as a ransom for us. He came not to, uh, to kill, but to be killed on a cross. And you know what this is? This is the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell. But because you know what we should have gotten? Jesus should have come 
He should have came on a white horse and he should have brought judgment for a world that has rebelled against him. Death should have come to all of us. But instead of getting judgment on a steed, he brought grace on a donkey. He brought himself. And you see, this is completely different than every other major world religion. Every other major world religion will tell you that salvation is earned through your, through your work, through the law, through moral superiority, that you have to do enough to make yourself presentable before the Lord. And Christianity alone declares that you can't do enough to make yourself acceptable before the Lord. So he comes. He comes in peace and he lives the life and he dies the death and he's resurrected from the grave and by grace through faith as we are united to him, we are saved, we are delivered, we are reconciled to a holy God. You see, Jesus came to reveal that he came to save people from their sin. All the way back at the beginning of Genesis, when the gospel first came to Adam and Eve, when it said the seed will crush the head of the serpent, the seed is now here. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards this Messiah, and this is the week that is going to change and alter human history for all of eternity. You see, Jesus came to do more than they expected. He didn't just come to set them free from Roman oppression and slavery. He came to do what? He came to defeat evil, death, and sin. He came to set us free. That's the gospel. As Tim Keller puts it, sin is servants putting themselves in the place of the king. And salvation was the king putting himself in the place of the servant. You know, the world has gone wrong. And the world has gone wrong because we have placed ourselves in the position of the king. Adam and Eve wanted to be God and we want to be God. And that's what creates so much brokenness in our world. Tim Keller would say that there's a spectrum of brokenness and fallenness, all the way from things like the Holocaust to even worry. And the same root is underneath both of those, a desire for us to be our own king. That's obvious with things like the Holocaust. But how does that play out in worry in my life? Do you know we worry? Do you know why we worry? We worry at night because you and I believe that we know the way our life ought to go. We are putting ourselves in the position of the king. And if only I had power, I could make everything right. And because I don't have the power, and because I don't trust the king who has the power, I will worry. See, all of our brokenness is because we are substituting ourselves for the king. But the gospel is the king substituting himself for the servants, becoming the suffering servant. Now, there are several different reactions in this passage. It says the chief priests and the teachers of the law were indignant. And I want to submit this to you this morning and to think about this this week. 
that if you really encounter Jesus, that he is claiming to be a king, a different kind of king, you cannot have a neutral reaction. You will oppose him or you will worship him. There is no middle ground. He is claiming to be the Messiah, the humble and divine king. And if we see that, we must have a reaction. And for believers, that means that we will be transformed by grace. How so? It means this. The more that we experience Jesus in our life, the more we are going to display the character that he demonstrated in his life. Think about humility and boldness. Because every other major world religion is going to tell you it's about your own moral striving, that you come up with some code of ethics. And if you are obeying this code of ethics, it's going to make you arrogant and prideful and not very humble. And if you are failing to live up to this code of ethics, then how are you going to feel? Despondent. And you're not going to have much bold joy in your life. But the gospel tells you this, that you were sinful enough that the Son of God had to come and to die for your sins. That will make you humble. But on the flip side of this, he loves you so much that he was willing to die for your sins. And that makes you bold. And that gives you joy when we experience the gospel and the freedom that we are simultaneously sinful and loved. And then we can move out into the world with the same boldness and humility that Jesus had. And we will be bursting with joy. Why? Because this... Behold, your king is coming. When the king comes, the creation is healed. Spiritually, socially, politically, every part of life is healed. And we know this, right? We want a king. We want a King Arthur. We want a King Richard who's going to come back and to make all things right. Well, you see, when Jesus comes back, he's going to make all things new. And when the creator rules his creation, there is perfect peace. And when the creator comes back the second time, he's not coming back as a lamb, but he's coming as a lion. And he's coming on a white horse. And until that day, he extends the donkey of grace that if we respond to him in repentance and faith, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So what did they expect? They expected a king with a sword and a war horse, a lion, with Roman blood being spilled, but what did they get? They got a lamb. They got a king who goes under the sword, who spilled his own blood. His entry was triumphant. His victory was certain, but it was greater than we expected. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would allow us to behold our King today. That we would see you as our humble and divine Messiah. That we would see and encounter you in such a way that our empty creeds and our failing lives would crumble. Father, there are people here today who have not yet made you the King of their life.
And I pray that Palm Sunday is the day that they meet the real Jesus. And Father, there are many others like me who are struggling with their humility, with their boldness, with their joy, with their patience and faith. I ask that you would bring your kingliness to our lives, exploding it in such a way that your kingliness is produced in our world. Father, we ask that you would do anything it takes to achieve this in our life. And that's what we pray for as we sing our final hymn. In the name of King Jesus, amen.